If ever you go to Dublin town in a hundred years or so, inquire for me in Baggett Street and what I was like to know. He was a queer one, full of little Ido. He was a queer one, and I'll tell you. Hello and welcome to If Ever You Go, a Northside Dublin Perspective. My name is Pat Lynch and I hope you will join me as we journey through the Dublin One City One book selection for 2014 entitled If Ever You Go, a map of Dublin in poetry and song. In this programme we continue our literary journey of Northside Dublin, this time through the areas of Dublin Nine and focusing on Glasnevin, Drumcondra, Ballymun and Fingless. The poems featured in this programme are Stony Grey Soiled by Colin Keegan, from Condor Bridge and Fingless 1979 by Dermot Bulger. First, we hear from Jean O'Brien, who reads and discusses her poem, The Botanic Gardens. It was too early in the year to see much. The herbaceous walk was scattered with a few daffodils and tulips. Everything else lay in sodden mounds, waiting their turn. The gardens had a bare, scrubbed look. I got tired of endless rows of polyanthus. You, pushing our daughter in her buggy, stopped and examined every tree, though all I saw was skeleton and bark, except for the evergreens. The giant sequoias were a mite small for my taste. All the while our son ran on ahead, impatient to be gone. Our daughter wore her petulant look. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see the tall tower of the crematorium nearby and curling smoke from a bonfire burning last year's leaves. Jean, curious poem at a few levels. First of all, you have the mood, you have the sense of the time of year. It's that in-between winter, maybe not quite full into spring yet, but somewhere near there. Um, But also, there's a sense of an internal in-between worlds as well because I suppose when we think of our beloved botanic gardens here on the north side um, we think of you know that that, that, that appreciation of nature that you mentioned the plants the families together everyone's happy but the narrator here seems slightly aloof from all these great things going on around her well yes because from the tower she's looking at the smoke um, and it's like as if it was a bonfire with last year's leaves my father is buried in Dean in um, Glasnevin, Dean's Grange, <laughs> is buried in Glasnevin Cemetery. And whenever I went to the botanics, he died in the December of a year. And later in the year, you know, in spring, as you say, we went there with my daughter, who was very young in her pushchair at the time. And I saw the chimney and he had been cremated there. And it just made me think of him, but also made me think of the dying of the year at the same time and the, yeah. the burning of the leaves and... Um, you know, I know in a sense the polyanthus should be renewed and new growth, but in the end you start to say, do I have to look at another ruddy polyanthus? <laughs> so, you you know, you are right. And I have in the very last line slightly borrowed, let's say, um, almost unintentionally, but, but uh, Desmond Egan, the poet Desmond Egan, had a book many, many years ago called Something Like burning the leaves, something like that and it sort of reminded me of it or I realised it after I'd written the poem that subconsciously I must have yes, yeah. come out with this. Absolutely, and it's a different take and, and it is nice where you talk about um, 
we did mention the, the, the whole nature aspect as well and but also even her placement in the family her, her husband's absorbed by these trees and right. the children are off doing their own thing and she, she she just feels like she's not quite fitting into where she should if you like Well my husband examines every tree everywhere we go he's a tree man he likes trees and he'd be calling me over look at this look at that I like trees I like nature but I just like to look at the tree yes you know? yeah. I don't need to examine it's every whatever yeah, yeah you know so it was just and I suppose I'm being a bit unfair to the sequoias because I had seen their originals actually in California you know the huge giant ones and they're so big you know and ours just seem paltry by comparison, by comparison. you know but. yeah and obviously as you say there is a maybe a particular state of mind and there you mentioned the, the inspiration behind the poem how long would it take for you was that something that was in your, the poem. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It, it, it was something that built yeah. up over time. I, I have written quite a lot about both my parents. My mother died when I was only 14, when I was very young. My father obviously didn't. He, he lived a lot longer and died the same year that my daughter was born. So I did then find, I wrote quite a few poems around his life, his death, yeah. my feelings. I nursed him at the end of his life and, you know, there was this thing, my daughter was being born while he was dying and it, it seemed to be like the pull of nature, the old year and the new year, so. Yeah. And I, I, in the way that it does capture a certain mood, um, I wonder how hard or easy is that to do in a poem? Does it take a bit yes, of work? Yes, I know what you mean. Well, uh, this poem was written 20 years ago. <laughs> um, I know exactly when my father died because I know what age my daughter is so I can I can age them and it was in December he died uh, which is coming coming up close. But um you know, I look back on that poem now and I'm not sure I'd write it in quite the same way now, you mm, know, mm. You, you sort of change yourself. I almost look back on it almost as if someone else had written it. Yeah, yeah. But but but, but it must be almost like Maybe a photo, like a snapshot in time. Oh for yes, you. for me it is. Oh yes, I mean I can still see. I've been to the botanic gardens many, many times. I love them. I mean they're gorgeous, but I can absolutely see that particular day and that particular mood I was in. And yeah, yeah. you know, even down to my poor daughter getting her petulant look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you say, the family weren't exactly playing ball. You know? <laughs> well, I, I I thought that the narrator was identifying more with the daughter than anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I say, and it, 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 it's that those last two lines are very important, too, in terms of yes. one level, the crematorium death. Yes. And then you bring it into about the, the, the leaves. The bonfire well. burning yeah. last year's leaves. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of it brings it bringing them both circle, together. Yeah. And, and it gives a clue maybe to read you know, that there's something bigger yes, going on as well. Yes, I, yeah. I think it sort of does. Yeah, I think they, they mention even earlier on where I'm saying that when I looked at the trees, I only saw skeleton yes. and bark. So yeah. I suppose I'm giving a hint in the word skeleton, you know, you yeah. think of death anyway. You know? Yeah. Now, it's curious because it, it doesn't, spell it out for you but you know there's something yes, for, for, yeah. for, for, for the author well I think most poets would say you're better not to sort of hammer the of reader course, on the head what's it leave something for the reader to discover for themselves yeah. you know but but very evocative and very um, you know it, it's, it's, it's achieved so much in terms of creating the atmosphere it creates and I often wonder I said that mustn't be done easy. How it do take, do take a bit of work to do that. Yeah, well, it, you know, I mean, as I say, I look back now, and sometimes yeah. I sometimes think when I was younger, poems almost came easier. There's almost a, a thing of you can know too much and mm. start trying to apply too many rules or, or whatever you've learned along the way. And sometimes I think 
that that maybe the more natural impulse when you were younger was sometimes almost a better one. Yeah, it, you know it is I mean. a pure yes, raw material yes. as opposed to have to think about it. Yes, yeah. you know. And would a poem like that have taken a lot of editing? Or I would edit them a fair bit now, I would. I mean, they'd come out in quite a rush because you're usually thinking of it subconsciously. You know, you've suddenly thought, oh yeah, and you put it into your subconscious and it does do its work and it would come out fairly yeah. raw and then, you know, typing it I, I always write by hand first then onto the computer so you're doing your first edit as you're typing it up and, yeah. that, and there must be you know. is there always a time where you just know that's it it's finished it's done no you just say <laughs> leave it alone and let's see if someone will be kind enough to publish it right <laughs> we asked pupils from St David's National Boys School how often they read poetry just with the skill, we in four class I started to get interested because we our teacher made us like write poems. So I got interested then, and then we just kept on reading them up to six. Well, sometimes when I'm bored, I just go on YouTube and look up random poems. I read poetry mostly in school. At home, I just read poetry in my spare time. Well, um, I only really started reading poetry a few weeks ago and I got really interested in it. I started reading it in fifth class and then continued on from there. Colm Keegan reads and discusses his poem Stony Grey Soiled. Ballymonia rock hard bitch my childhood love you taved your harsh nature quarried my passion you carved me from barren streets you concreted the feet of my boyhood and twisted my stride to a stumble your sprawl corrupted my naive tongue Indian ink and my guttural mumble you preach from the trough of the scrounger, the heaving life-strangling trough. Your mantra stained, your culture stunted, you kept diamonds dull in the rough. You screamed across piss-stained balconies, the wail of the deserted brood. You stewed my clothes in smoke and bills, you reared me on stale food. Your silhouette sells my vision of beauty, love and truth. Ballymun, you barren whore, you spoiled the stock of my youth. Not for me, golden views of mothers, as poverty-free young hens. So I vow to stab at your crusted back and embrace the poison pen that scars these loveless verses and courses the tarmac where the force claimed flight of my fury got caught in this poet's prayer. Kiant MacDermot bal butcher shangan wherever I run I see the stony grey rubble of Ballymun rebuilt as dark towers in me. Colm. <laughs> How's it going? How are you doing? Welcome. Um, the one thing that is so obvious about this, you know, you can read poetry and get your interpretations, but what comes true from this is anger. This is this is saying you're not looking back with affection. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I like, I kind of feel bad about the poem in some ways because I've been, I've been walking out in Ballymun a lot lately and uh, the thing that I make it stand for here, you know, is uh, is a certain idea of Ballymun that's very bad for Ballymun, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but that's who I am, and that's what I was, and that's what shaped me. And in some way, this in the book, this poem stands alone. Like the book is divided into sections, but this is the first poem, and it's saying a few things. It's it's me kind of putting on Cavanagh's coat in a way and stepping into his poem, Stony Grey Soil and Monaghan, and uh, it's also saying that's where Dublin starts for me. Yeah. Ballymun yeah. and that's like the starting point of everything for me and it's a starting point of a certain uh, chip on the shoulder that I have about being working class about being shaped and marked by where I am like the accent even that I have is like a tattoo that yeah. defines me and, and uh, enables 
certain people to judge you, you know. Yes. So all of that stuff is in there, I suppose. Absolutely. And I was I was an angry young man when I wrote it. Yeah. I'm not as angry anymore. I'm angry <laughs> about different things now, but. No, well, that's what I loved about it because it, it, it is that honesty, the idea that I would imagine it, it was challenging reading because I, I said to myself, okay. I suppose people feel this pressure almost. You see it done so much, this pressure to be affectionate and loving about the place you come from. Yeah. And almost maybe sometimes see it through rose-tinted glasses, but, mm-hmm. this, but this doesn't. It's been brutally honest and say, well, look, this is what I felt about the place. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was a harsh place, like, you couldn't trip out. Like, when I was a kid growing up there, like, you couldn't, if you tripped over, like, you split yourself, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was concrete <laughs> everywhere. So it was a hard, uh, uncaring environment in that way. Yeah. And in some ways, like, it was an example of a certain type of contempt the government had for the people it was supposed to be taken care of, like, you know. Yeah. Um, but in some ways it was like, you know, it was a groundbreaking, fascinating, futuristic yeah. place to live at the start. Yeah. Um, and then there was other issues that kind of crept in there over time. Yeah. Um, I got the sense too, uh, at times, that you're a poet and obviously that's an artistic thing. And did you feel that was suppressed coming from Ballymoon? Did you feel that was something that you had to play down a bit or was the, did the poetry just come much later on? Yeah, there was always that friction there, I suppose. Uh, like, And you can even say, like, in just the... I've, I've one brother that I grew up with, you know, like, there's four of us in the family, but of kind of a second family of a young brother and sister. And then myself and my brother grew up, grew up together. But we're like polar opposites, like, you know, I'm, I'm, he used to call me college boy and he was like the real streetwise dude. And there was that friction there between those two. Yeah. Um those two approaches to the world, you know, mm-hmm. to be bookish or to be like kind of out there and getting stuck in and uh, streetwise. So yeah, there was always, um, yeah, I was a, I was a big softy, you know, yeah. growing up, sensitive type, like, and uh, yeah, it was a tough, it was kind of a tough place. There'd be a lot of running around, like kind of making sure. Yeah. There'd be a lot of uh, difficulty walking around, being afraid you're going to get the head bit off, you know, yeah. when you're a little windy bloke like I was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or even if you were writing poems, maybe kind of hiding them that no one would see them, maybe? Or was it, was it um, like that? No, or yeah, well, I suppose down? a lot of that uh, was just me. You yeah, know, like yeah. it, when, it, when it, like I wasn't writing poetry growing up, but I was a big reader and that's how I defined myself. And, uh, oh, you know, I'd be writing little raps and stuff all the time in school for the laugh. And then as I grew up, the writing just started to come out. And... Uh, but there was that kind of thing of like, what are you doing? What do you, what do you think I'm doing yeah. with them poems, you know? Um, and say, I think that gave the work a sort of edge or a sort of a... I, like, it galvanised it in a certain way because I was always aware of that yeah. reception. Yeah. So I never wanted to be too flowery or yes. ornate or pretentious or anything like that. Yeah. I wanted it to be real. And I would have been reading people like... Um, Bukowski, you know what I mean? And, and thinking like the, the, the flattering... Like, and all I had gone for me, like, I had no real... I didn't pick up a lot of expertise. I didn't I have no degrees in poetry or anything like that. Like, you know, so all I have gone for me is like a certain honesty. Yeah, That's, yeah. That was the thing for me, is just to be honest. Sure. And despite the anger that comes across, there is a, I felt it was a line or two towards the end there where it, it's kind of begrudgingly saying, well, look, you, you made me as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in, it's in where it differs, like, and like, I literally, I got the idea, like, I remember Joseph O'Connor saying he rewrote John McGarren's short story, The Dark. Mm-hmm. And this was when I was, like, starting to write. And I remember seeing him speak and he said that. And I thought to myself, like, I'd like to do that. And I, I chose Kavanagh to deal with it. And it was this kind of thing of, like, uh, um, you know, putting, like, imitating him, you yes, know, and yeah. also in a way to kind of uh, get rid of him. Sort yeah, of tale, yeah, you know. You're, you're but, re- rehashing, redating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 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 like, so, but when I, when I, when I did that, um, 
he relents on Stone and he says, ah, but Monaghan, you know, we still, you're all right. But like where I branch away is actually, I kind of refuse to mm. let it go. Like I kind of say, right, you know, I'm going to always hate you. Yeah. Um, which was a bit, um, I, I don't really agree with that now. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Like, but yeah. when I was writing it, that's the way I felt. Yeah. Um, that I was always, I was going to hate it and I was always going to hate it. But yeah. there are certain elements of it that I, that I do hate. And it's, and it's like, um, you know, it's it's it, the, the the older I get, the more complex that I, the, what what Ballymun represents mm-hmm. be, becomes more complicated. You know, and I still see it as a defining moment in the country's history in a way, like what they did out there and how it didn't work and how the how the how Ballymun itself regenerated itself. Yeah, like the, yeah. the government had to be told by the people that it had to be done, yes. and the government had to give in eventually. Yeah, like yeah. the government go, oh, we regenerate Ballymun, they didn't. Like yeah. Ballymun fixed itself, you know. <laughs> And that, that's what what's so, I think, hit me about the poem was, as you say, it does resist that temptation to to take on the, all that on board. You know, the, the, you know, there could be a pressure, you know, people say, oh, you know, you, you got to show a bit of respect to your area. And, but but you're saying, no, no, this is my version of it. And, you know, it, it's uncompromising in that way. That's what I like about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, like, I suppose the thing about that was, um, it was, it's a bit, it's it's unfair in a way, but it's, it's the truth. It's how, exactly yeah. how we felt, and uh, and it was like there was a certain naivety in that as well, like in that admission that I didn't even think of the long term effects of it. Yeah, like, it was yeah. just like this is exactly how we feel, and even me mother like and me dad like get pissed off me about the poem. <laughs> you know, like I didn't really on style feel me. Might be saying you know and say oh it's a met format you know. And uh, <laughs> but dad, as an Irish dude, you have you have this vision of saying you can't say that about the place. Yeah, <laughs> see, but I can. It's my yeah. it's my version of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you know it's like and I. I, I suppose that's something that I'll do. Like I like to be like the, um, um, I like to, as a writer, I like to think of being like, uh, you know, that priest and father Ted that goes around kicking all the doors, saying, "This is very shoddy workmanship," and it keeps kicking it until it breaks. Like I'm kind of a bit like that, you know? Yeah, brilliant. As I came down through Dublin City at the hour of twelve at night, who should a spy but a Spanish lady washing her feet by the candlelight? First she washed them, then she dried them over a fire of amber coals. And all my life I never did see a maid so sweet about the soul. Whack as I came back through Dublin City at the hour of half past eight, who should a spy but the Spanish lady brushing her hair in the broad daylight? First she brushed it, then she tossed it, on her lap was a silver comb. In all my life I never did see a maid so fair since I did roam. Whack full of two whack full of two as I returned to Dublin City as the sun began to set, who should espy but a Spanish lady catching a moth in a golden net? First she saw me, then she fled me, lifted her petticoats over her knee. In all my life I never did see a maid so fair as the Spanish lady. Whack full of two rye, whack full of two rye, rye, all ages later, hands on me, cold as a fire of ashy coals. But there is the love of me Spanish lady, a maid so sweet about the soul. Whack full of two rye, rye, whack full of two rye, rye. That was The Spanish Lady, sung by Jerry Cooley. Next, we hear from Dermot Bulger reading and discussing his poem, Drumcondra Bridge. Three lanes become to her. Motivist joist in a daily game to see who will blink first. 
Every afternoon, when I approach this bridge, I relive the second when the cyclist strayed to avoid the pothole that blocked her passage, her glimpse of water through the balustrade as a car brushed the college books on her carrier with the faintest touch as she swerved and fell. Traffic crept past while passerbys encircled her, motionless and hushed as if locked into a spell. Her back wheel still spun where it had fallen, with her face hidden, no hint of hair or clothes, but peeping out from an aisle-streaked tarpaulin, two breathtakingly white, slender, bare souls. Thank you, Dermot. That's a reminder, I suppose, of what poetry so often does, a snapshot, a moment in time, something that's taken us out of the ordinary and presumably this was a very specific instance. And that is uh, really a snapshot. In time, uh, I live in Duncondra. It was set on Duncondra Bridge. As you go past Fagan's pub, you have three lanes there uh, and it, the road becomes incredibly narrow and you have traffic moving in a very, very haphazard way. I was walking to post office and I didn't see the crash. I just saw a girl's body lying on the footpath and... Um, her face was covered over, so I knew she was dead. Mm. And the only thing sticking out were, were her feet. And she was obviously a college student. And I never saw anything in the paper afterwards about the accident, or it didn't even, maybe it made a paragraph I never saw. It was just this little moment. I don't know who the poor um, girl was. I knew a couple of people had been killed by, including a neighbour, uh, on as they were cycling around Dublin in the previous few months and it was just this tiny moment that I, I just felt uh, I had to record it in some way yeah. uh, without hopefully not being intrusive yes. to the actual person who was never identified but that strange moment that just touched so many people that very, very tragic moment uh, of a whole future just being gone in an instant and so it's a poem I've never read in public before. It's, it's a poem I wasn't even sure that I would publish, but it, it, it was just, it was that moment uh, of, and, and the strange silence of people who were almost were in a fairy tale, were almost like hushed, almost in a spell. It, it was a very, very disconcerting uh, thing to see. Yeah, and, and the whole thing of the idea of a light going out in the middle of the day like that amongst everything else that's going on around it, as you say. And you know? everything else yeah, is going on. Yeah. And because, but people don't know and people can't stop and people yeah. are, and, and people are, it's a dangerous bridge anyway and people are moving on and she'd fallen, the, the, the traffic hadn't stopped or anything. So, it, it, but sometimes, uh, 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 as uh, sometimes you go and search for inspiration and everything else. I wasn't searching for anything no. that day. It was just, it, it was just there and I felt that it was uh, a moment that should be recorded in some small way. And it reminded me too of the healing power of poetry from the point of view that it's a reaction you know people are shocked they want to do something with that shock is, is, do you find poetry where you turn to in something in those if that was a healing poem it was a healing poem purely for me because, uh, exactly because that's I, don't, I, mean, yeah. I don't I don't, I don't uh, suggest it as a healing poem no, for, no. for anybody else but in some ways I needed to respond to that yes. moment in some way and the only way I, I knew to respond to that moment I, I couldn't even write to the um, girl's parents mm. or to anybody else I didn't know who she was or, or, or her friends or anything else I just felt I needed for myself that it wasn't something that I could just walk away from I yeah. felt that I needed to uh, record some record of it and that's what a poet does And we continue with Dermot Bulger who reads and discusses his poem Fingless 1979 Steel winds at dawn sting like a wasp in this factory where men curse 
and rust grows like hair on a corpse. She's off to work as he finishes night shift. Today is their child's first birthday. They'll put his name down on the housing list. Taking a chair, he sits in the garden, smoking Moroccan dope and tripping. The housing estate keeps disappearing. He finds himself at the bottom of a pond, floating below rows of water lilies with new names like Fingless and Ballymun. Dermot, um, again, um, kind of a sensuous kind of poem. There seems to be a few things going on there. It's like a few things coming together, perhaps. It is, it's, it's only the third part of a, of a poem called Fingless Lilies uh-huh. and uh, the first two parts went as good. I'm not saying that's, that's very good to begin with. But it's, not, it's an important poem for me because it was the first time as a poet I consciously mentioned Fingless and Ballymun as place names of poetry. And it was based on uh, my first job was um, working in a welding rod factory called Orlikin, which is now closed. And my first novel, Night Shift, is the welding rod's sole contribution to world literature. It's very much based on Orlikin. In fact, I used real people because I never imagined it would ever be published. And uh, there was somebody a year or two older than me who was uh, got married, had a child, and was you know taking a lot of dope. And, uh, there was sort of it, it was just trying to capture his sort of world mm. of um, and the whole sense of despair around that time of being so young walking in a really tough environment uh, and faced with responsibilities of parenthood and things which I wasn't people sometimes imagine the poem was autobiographical but that sort of little small poem became in time the novel Night Shift mm. uh, and so it was like a little ma- and the way that um, I published a book of Sebastian Barry's poems years ago called Fanny Hawk Goes to the Mainland and I, I should have kept all the novel rights because every novel every novel he's ever written has been based on one of those poems <laughs> so that, 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 that poem contained the seed of what became Night Shift when I became a novelist Right and uh, uh, there's something there seems to be something anyway I would imagine for poets or writers or anybody that 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 thing about the after hours world, it's it's you know the, the night shift, the idea of working when everyone else is maybe the city. Well, this asleep. is this is also there's a sense a, a sense of total isolation of yeah. somebody. And it was uh, when we walked in Arlington, we walked uh, three different shifts in three different weeks in the pattern. So one week you'd be getting off at half three, one week you'd be getting off at half eleven, and one week you'd be getting off at half seven in the morning. And mm. the whole strange thing of the, how disconcerting it is to your body to walk all through the night, and then I get four o'clock in the morning when dawn came you'd get the surge of energy and then a half seven you'd, you'd go out and you'd be uh, everybody else would be going to walk mm. and so the, I think there's that sense of isolation in, in the poem of somebody uh, who finds at eight o'clock in the morning he's finishes his day's walk and he should go to bed but he doesn't go to bed because the sun is there and, and it's, it's like having a perpetual jet lag every morning mm, mm, that, that, that sense of being out of time yes yeah, almost yeah Thank you for joining us on If Ever You Go, A Northside Dublin Perspective, our exploration of the north side of Dublin through poetry and song. And many thanks to all the guests who featured in this programme. For further information on this series, check out nearfm.ie forward slash if ever you go series. If ever you go to Dublin town in a hundred years or so, Inquire for me in Baggett Street And what I was like to know He was a queer one Followed it light oh He was a queer one And I'll tell you 
This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.